you this morning to turn to the book of Joshua. We're going to look at the first chapter here this morning briefly as we unpack uh, for this part of the journey. And I hope you're following along with us as we read through the, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, we are on a journey of discovery. What I love about the book of Joshua is it's really all about having a great big God. <laughs> and that he calls each and every one of us to do great big things. Author John Ortberg asked the question, how big is your God? How big is your God? And he, he basically points out that your concept of God is directly related to the problems in your life. If your God is small, then your problems, in contrast, are big. They're huge. But if you have a proper understanding that God is big, then by contrast, your problems are small. And he illustrates it with the story of Bubba. He writes this, I was walking in Newport Beach with two friends. Two of us were on staff together at a church, and one was an elder at the same church. We walked past a bar where a fight had been going on inside. The fight had spilled out into the street, just like an old western. Several guys were beating up on another guy, and he was bleeding from the forehead. We knew we had to do something, and so we went over to break up the fight. I don't think we were very intimidating. All I did was walk over and say, hey, you guys, cut that out. It didn't do much good. Then all of a sudden, they looked at us with fear in their eyes. The guys who had been beating up on the, guy, on the one guy stopped and started to slink away. I didn't know why until we turned and looked behind us. Out of the bar had come the biggest man I think I'd ever seen. He was something like six feet, seven inches, maybe 300 pounds, and maybe 2% body fat. Huge. We called him Bubba. Not to his face, but afterwards when we were talking about him. <laughs> Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and flexed. You could tell he was hoping they would try to go at him. All of a sudden, my attitude was transformed. And I said to those guys, hey, you better uh, not let us catch you coming around here again. I was a different person because I had a big, great Bubba. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was ready to help somebody that needed helping. I was ready to serve where serving was required. Why? Because I had a great, big Bubba. I was convinced that I was not alone. I was safe. He goes on, if I were convinced that Bubba were with me 24 hours a day, I would have a fundamentally different approach to my life. If I knew Bubba was behind me all day long, you wouldn't want to mess with me. But he's not. I can't count on Bubba. <laughs> you know, again and again, all the way through the scriptures, the writers seem to be asking and posing that same question time and time again. How big is your God? How big is your God? And again and again, we're reminded that the one who is greater than Bubba has come. <laughs> and you don't have to wonder whether or not he's going to show up. He always will. He's always there. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to run away. You don't have to live in hiding. We have a great big God, and he's called us to do something great and big. And so get on with it. That's the big idea. That's the big story of the book of Joshua. In fact, the book of Joshua teaches us so much as to how God works in and among his own chosen people it really reflects today how God works in and through us. In the same way, God hasn't changed. The video gave a great review as to what brings us to this point in God's Word, this, uh, this book of Joshua. The Hebrew people had left the familiar surroundings of Egypt. 
Uh, they had been there for 400 years. They had grown from a large family of 12 sons of Jacob to a huge nation called Israel. Uh, they were a tremendous threat to Pharaoh, so he enslaved them just to keep them in check. And basically through a series of miraculous events, God used a man by the name of Moses to get them out, to deliver them out of Egypt. They headed north. God was leading them to a new place, a place called Canaan, later to be renamed Israel. But between Egypt and Israel, they had to go through this wilderness. They had to go through hundreds of miles of dry, barren, hot wasteland. And yet God remained faithful. God always provided for them. God always protected them. Even though they basically grumbled, bickered, and complained all the way through the whole trip. So we have the original sons of Jacob, these 12 tribes, disorganized. They're squabbling. They're without a homeland, and they're heading north. How many people are we talking about? Well, according to Exodus chapter 12, there were about 3 million. That's a lot of people. 3 million men, women, and children. And so we're talking about this massive mob of people. Can you imagine seeing them coming across the wilderness? You could see them as far as the eye could see, all the way to the horizon. They would fill up an entire valley in the wilderness as they were traveling north. And they finally arrive at the Jordan River. They decide to spy out the new promised land before they uh, crossed on over. But again, they were divided. Uh, basically, some said, let's go for it. We can do this. This is ours for the taking. We got a great big God. But the majority said, no way. There are giants in that land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're big, ugly. We're not going there. We didn't sign up for this. We're going back to Egypt. But for the next 40 years, they wander in the wilderness until that older generation dies out. And then we're left here at the beginning of Joshua with a new generation, a bunch of millennials, maybe. I don't know. But they had a new young leader, a young warrior by the name of Joshua. And he says, let's go for it this time. The old generation is gone. Let's do it. Let's cross the Jordan. This is ours. God has promised it to us. We're going to take the land. We're going to possess it. Now, you might remember some of the old songs, some of the old spirituals about crossing over the Jordan River. Uh, remember that uh, great old classic, Swing Low, Swing Chariot. You know, I, I, I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me. The imagery is that the Jordan River is death. And the promised land is heaven. And so they say that basically the symbolism, the imagery here, is uh, crossing over from this life into the next. But if that's true, then we have a major, major problem. You see, after they cross the Jordan, the Israelites are involved in some major battles. I mean, they go through some great victories, but they go through some serious setbacks. In other words, there's a lot of wars, there's a lot of fighting going on. Is that the way heaven's going to be? I don't think so. Once they cross the river, they're going to fight for possession of the land. Is that what we're going to do in heaven? No, I don't think so. And so what does the promised land of Canaan really represent? Israel and, 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 and Joshua did not come as pilgrims. They did not come as, as, as uh, <laughs> visitors or tourists. They came as invaders. They came to invade the land and, and basically dispossess its inheritance. That's not what we're going to do in heaven. That's not what heaven's all about. You see, the book of Joshua, if it represents anything, it's not life after death. What Joshua represents, going across that Jordan, is life after life, after rebirth. In other words, the, the book really represents what happens to you when you cross the river of baptism, so to speak, into the victorious Christian life. But there's going to be battles. There's going to be some serious obstacles. 
So how big is your God? How big is your God? I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, I really did think that all my problems were going to just kind of melt away, that hard times would be over. I thought I was entering into kind of a spiritual Disneyland where I checked all my problems and worries at the gate and I entered the happiest place on earth. I really believed that at 19, 20 years old when I made my life, uh, committed my life to Christ. But the truth is, life got tougher. Life gets rougher. It's more difficult after you become a Christian. In many ways. Why is that? Because we basically feel this tension between living in the kingdom of the world and also living in the kingdom of God. And we begin to see and discover new truths, truths about ourselves that we're not comfortable with. I don't want to stay the way I am anymore. And so we, we begin to do battle with the flesh. We begin to do battle with the world around us in so many ways. And in many ways, it can become more and more uncomfortable. If we're, if we're not careful, what happens is a lot of Christians, they say, you know what, I didn't sign up for this. And they go back into the world value system, and they start living like the world. And it's a lot easier to ride with the tide and go with the flow. It's difficult to grow, and yet the victory belongs to God. The battle belongs to God, but he calls us into the battle. Are you going through battles this morning? I hope you are. <laughs> I am. We're all going through battles, and that's a good thing. That's what God calls us to do. We're in the promised land. Many churches today are filled with three kinds of people. How do we handle all the different obstacles in the battles? Well, three kinds of people here are seen in the book of Joshua. And, and, and basically, the first kind of person that we see in this book are what I call the avoiders. Uh, their motto is, let's not do anything. Let's do nothing. And unfortunately, we have a lot of these kind of people in the church today. These are people who avoid all the battles. They pretend they're not in battles. They're not facing anything. They, they basically go around and they have a smile on their face and pretend and live in denial of reality. They don't cross into the promised land. They basically don't obey God. And they end up wandering in the wilderness all their lives. These are the believers, again, that, that refuse to obey God and, and um, they don't deal with the reality of what the Christian life is all about. Maybe because it's, it, they're lazy. Maybe it's because of disobedience. Maybe it's because of fear. But for whatever reason, these avoiders don't cross in to what it means to live the victorious Christian life in and through the battles that we face. Chuck Swindoll, one of my heroes, once said that one of his greatest frustrations in his 40, 45 years of ministry is the realization all those years of how many people uh, in the church are just not growing. They're not growing. I don't know how many that is, half. I don't know if it's the majority or not, but Christians today, so many are not growing. They're avoiders. A second kind of person that we see here in the book of Joshua are the complainers. <laughs> Their motto is, hey, let's go back to Egypt. I don't want to put up with this. I mean, there are, are giants in the land. We have to fight. We have to do battle. I have to struggle. No way. I didn't sign up for this. And these are the people that look back. They long for the good old days. Let's go back to Egypt. They forget that they were in slavery. Somehow that looks better. They, they're people that see the grass is always greener on the other side. Listen, the grass is not greener on the other side. Someone once said, you know, it's not only not greener, it's longer, it needs mowing, and it was spray-painted by the enemy. <laughs> Where's the grass greener? It's where you water it. It's where you are. The problem is the myth of the greener grass. Uh, the complainer type is the pessimist. 
Uh, this is the person that is in a lot of churches today as well. Uh, they they kind of go with Murphy's Law. Remember Murphy's Law? Uh, some people live by this law. It goes like this. Nothing is as easy as it looks. Everything takes longer than expected. And if anything should go wrong, it will. And at the worst possible moment. Now, that's Murphy's Law. And if you think that's pessimistic, there's another guy that came along named O'Toole, and he adds a corollary to Murphy's Law. And he basically says, look, here's my, here's my corollary to the, to the law. Murphy was actually an optimist. <laughs> it's easy to be a pessimist. It is easy to be a complainer. We live in a broken world, and we can get so used to uh, the things around us operating by Murphy's Law. We can get so frustrated. The problem is, if we really believe and, and expect Murphy's Law to always be true, we can end up being a pessimist permanently. We won't change. We end up being a cynic. We're filled with sarcasm and despair and even depression. I don't believe the answer is to swing to that extreme and become a pessimist like Murphy or O'Toole. Our motto should not be, hey, if anything should go wrong, it will. Or smile, tomorrow's going to get worse. Or uh, just lower your expectations and you're never disappointed. God doesn't want us to live like that. The problem with that kind of life is that it sucks the life right out of you and saps your joy. Third kind of person in the book of Joshua are the conquerors. These are the people that say, let's go for it. We have God on our side. We have a great big God. Joshua led the charge, and he was victorious as he went into the promised land because he had a big God. He knew who God was. He took possession of what God had already promised was theirs, the land. Now, today you're a born-again Christian. You've accepted Christ. That's great. Now your problems really begin. <laughs> your battles start. Why? Because you're in a spiritual battle to take possession of what God says is already yours. What's yours? Your inheritance in Christ. It's who you are. God has given to you, it says in Ephesians, everything pertaining to life and godliness through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the Christian goal is not just to be delivered from Egypt. It's to head to the promised land. In other words, it's not just about you being saved from the bondage of sin and death, as great as that is. It's not just about avoiding hell and getting your get-out-of-jail-free card. It's more than that. It's about living the victorious Christian life in and through the battles that you face. I face battles every day. So do you. Don't avoid them. Don't complain about them. Meet them head on. The Christian life does not, uh, is not about working up to victory. It's working down from his victory. In other words, the Christian life is, is arising from what God has already done, his victory. It's his battle. And we enjoy that, even in the midst of our suffering. Let me contrast the difference between uh, these three kinds of people when it comes to dealing with some of the hardships and some of the difficulties of life. We have the avoiders. Uh, basically, they believe everything's going to go smoothly. We have the complainers that say nothing's going to go smoothly. We have the conquerors in Christ who recognize problems and battles that are a normal and expected part of life. The avoiders are not prepared to handle problems because they don't anticipate any. The complainers expect, prob uh, expect everything to be a problem and have few solutions. The conquerors in Christ put their faith in a big God, confident in victory through Him. The avoider is taken by surprise. They often feel overwhelmed. The complainers deal with problems by criticizing and then running away. The conquerors in Christ face problems head-on. They make plans, God's plans, to deal with the situation. 
And then finally, avoiders can be blindsided, and they're often uh, defeated. Complainers have little joy, little hope, and they're often defeated. Conquerors in Christ overcome problems in God's strength with victory, joy, and hope. What basic uh, approach do you take to life? Uh, are, are you, do you tend to be a vo- an avoider? Do you tend to be a complainer? Or are you someone who is a conqueror in Christ? How can you become more? How can I become more of a conqueror in Christ? It's realizing what God says about you, who you are in Christ. It's realizing that we serve a mighty God, a great God, a big God, worthy to be praised. Amen. Praise God. Amen, Brother Brad. (laughs) Well, let's look carefully at what this first verse in Joshua chapter 1 tells us. It says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all these people, to the land which I am giving to them, the sons of Israel. Now, what is continually emphasized in the book of Joshua, time and time again, over and over again, is the fact that this land is a gift uh, to Israel. It's It's a gift by God. It's a part of that covenant relationship. The land is theirs. God has promised it to them. He has given it to them. They have absolutely no right to it. They haven't earned it. They haven't deserved it. But God gives it to them anyway. It's the land. Today, the world continues to challenge God's gift to his people. Have you noticed that? In fact, there's a tremendous amount of world pressure today directed at Israel trying to return or pressuring them to return the conquered territories to the Arab people for the last 50, 60 years. Well, what's interesting is the Bible says that that tension, that, that, that resistance against Israel, that hatred for Israel is going to continue more and more until Jesus comes back again. And when Christ comes back, he's going to deliver the Jews. He's going to rule over the land with a converted and redeemed Israel. You see, today, Israel is not redeemed. Israel today is not converted. Why? Because they've rejected the Messiah. They rejected their Messiah. And so they have not completely possessed the land. They've not experienced yet what God wants them to have that they will have someday when he comes back in glory. Praise God for that. Well, in the same way, you know, we Christians, we fall short of oftentimes appropriating what God has given to us. We don't take what God has given. He's given us to, to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so we live in defeat so many times. We don't face our battles. We avoid our battles. We complain about our battles instead of saying, God, this battle belongs to you. And I'm going to move forward. Joshua 1.3, God tells him, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. In other words, God says, it's yours, it's, it's my gift to you, it's a part of the covenant relationship. But you know what? A gift is not a gift unless you take it. For a gift to be effective, possession has to be taken. For a check to be any good, you have to cash it, right? Otherwise, it's, it's worthless, it's meaningless. For Christ's redemption to avail and to be applied, it has to be received, it has to be relied upon. A pardon has to be received by the condemned. I tell that familiar story about the governor who offered a man about to be executed a pardon. He said, I don't want it. He refused the pardon. He was executed. Christ has pardoned you, but it's not effective unless you receive it. And so contrary to popular opinion, we're not all God's children. Everybody in in our world, we're all God's children. No, you're not. I'm sorry to say, the Bible says we don't automatically go to heaven by default. 
John 1.12 says, but as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. You know, I believe one of the toughest things in our lives is basically to accept the fact that God's gift is free. It's all 100% by God's grace. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. And that's one of the most difficult things for us to accept. Why? Because I think there's something down in our in the inner recesses of, our, recesses of our old nature that wants to work for it. We want to earn it. I want to feel better about myself by deserving this. And so that's why religion is so much more popular and attractive than a relationship with God based on grace. People think, you know, it's all about works because I feel better about myself when I do that. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It's God's free gift. And all we are called to do is just embrace it, receive it, surrender to him. In verse 4, God says, From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. You know, this is really a huge chunk of real estate that God has promised them. And it reiterates the promise that God made to Abram back in Genesis chapter 15. Israel's right to the land was first promised, and the boundaries were first drawn five centuries earlier. Five centuries, 500 years earlier than when Joshua came across and took it. Genesis 15, 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Wow! What's interesting about that is this great land has its eastern boundary at the Euphrates River. I mean, that's all the way to Baghdad. Take a look at the next slide. Someone might talk about the West Bank, but uh, basically this is a different West Bank. This West Bank is all the way, uh, extends 300 miles all the way into Iraq. Let me see the next slide there with the, with the map on it. Is it back? Did I lose that particular slide? It was a map basically that showed the boundaries being basically most of the Middle East today. Israel never even came close to taking all that God had promised was, was theirs for the taking. Verse 5, no one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. What a wonderful promise that God made to the entire nation. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. Don't you wish God would make a promise like that to you? He has. <laughs> uh, God does not change. It's the same promise that he has for each and every one of us today. Hebrews 13, 5, for he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Someone once said, you are immortal until God has finished using you for his purposes. In other words, if you're not dead, you're not done. <laughs> the fact that you're alive today means that God is still working in and through you in a mighty way. And when, he's, and when you're done, he takes you out, <laughs> takes you home. You are immortal until God is done with you. God has given us more than 800 promises in his word. Furthermore, he has promised his personal presence. He has promised his abiding uh, Holy Spirit within us. We have the absence of fear because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have an assurance of victory in the conflict against demonic forces because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have the victory. The battle belongs to the Lord. 
One of the greatest things you can do is to, is to memorize and claim some of those precious promises that God has given to us in His Word. Verse 6 says, Be strong, be courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. I promised this was theirs, and it is. Just take it. Go in, possess it. We really do serve the God of all encouragement. Let's never forget that God's great purpose in, de in His dealings with us is that we might come to know Him. I want to know Him better. I want to know how great and mighty He really is. I want to know Him more and more, every moment of every day. And I hope you do too. How do we do that? We get into His Word. We discover what God is doing. We listen to His Spirit. We grow in Him. We face those battles. We experience the victory that we have in Christ. And we understand more and more that God is a great and mighty God. Again, worthy to be praised. In his intimate prayer to the Father, the, Jesus said this, This is eternal life. What's eternal life? Living forever? No. What's eternal life? What's the definition of eternal life? This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the definition of eternal life is not just to live forever. More importantly, it's to know God and love and serve Him, now and forever. That's the definition of eternal life, to know and experience God forever. You see, God is more concerned about your character than your comfort. God is more concerned about making your life holy than your life happy. Now, we can reasonably be happy in this life, but that's not the goal. God's goal for you is to be holy, set apart for His use. To know and to love Him with all that you have. We, in the book of Joshua, we get to know Him through the defeats and through the victories, through the highs and through the lows, through the mountains and through the valleys. We get to know Him, that He is a great and mighty God, worthy to be praised. What was the key to their prosperity? What was the key to their success? It's summed up here in verse 7 and 8 of Joshua chapter 1. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book, book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. That's really the key. We discover later on that when Joshua did not seek the Lord, when he did not obey God, he failed miserably, and so will we. You know, the remarkable thing about these days of preparation is that nothing is said about Israel's enemies. Nothing is said about the kind of weapons they're going to use once they get into the promised land. They didn't have tanks. They didn't have you know, ballistic missiles. What did they have? Well, the most important and most powerful weapon they really had was the sword. What is our sword? It's the sword of God's word. We need to know it. We need to apply it. We need to live it out so that we experience success and prosperity in the way that God defines that. Hebrews 4.12 says this, But the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just a dusty book sitting on a shelf somewhere. It is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is a living book. And I hope and pray it's a part of your life daily as bread and as a weapon. 
And so verse 8 is really the key to all prosperity. This key doesn't just work some of the time. It doesn't just work part of the time. This is the key to success that works all the time. Now up to this point, the leader of Israel basically uh, had a personal and direct uh, communication with God. But now the focus is on basically commanding personal obedience to God's word. But we discover here in the very first chapter of, of Joshua are, are three things that Israel did, did before they went into the land. Three vital things in preparation for D-Day. This was D-Day. Before they hit the beaches, although there weren't really, really beaches with the, with the River Jordan, but before they hit it, three ways that God assimilated and mobilized this mighty army to be a powerful force, to move ahead without any fear. First and foremost, number one, they ignored their differences and they closed ranks in unity. Take a look at verse 16. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words, and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Wow. They're 100% totally sold out. Once they heard Joshua's game plan, once they realized that this, this was the Lord's strategy, they were all in. They rallied around the plan. They promised their allegiance. What a joyful, what a refreshing atmosphere is created when God's people rally around a, a common goal together. Nothing is more powerful than that. Nothing has more blessing than that, especially in the church. When we're rallied together, which is why our enemy will do everything he can to torch our faith. He is alive and well. He'll do everything he can to cause disunity. He'll do everything he can in the church to cause fear. He will do anything and everything to divide us. And it's often over the little things. <laughs> you know, uh, Song of Songs 2.15 tells us the little foxes are the ones that are ruining the vineyard. It's the little things oftentimes that divide us. Which is why it's so critical that we maintain our unity with an invincible confidence and absolute willingness to focus on the many things that we have in common, not focusing on the little things, the, the, the small differences between us. Man, right now we live, in a, we live in a divided nation politically. And unfortunately, that's crept into the church today as well. All churches. Churches are being blown apart because they're taking those differences in politics. Really? Politics? And it's dividing the body. And people are being blown away and leaving. Unity and pettiness cannot coexist. One of our core values here at Foothills Church, one of our core values is in essentials, unity. In other words, in the things that really matter, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. You're free to vote or do whatever. There's freedom in that. And then in all things, all things, love. I want to suggest that you make that your motto this year. Alec McGinnis, in his book, The Friendship Factor, gives a great illustration that I shared a long time ago. Maybe you might remember it. John Wesley and George Whitfield were two evangelists, great evangelists back in the 18th century, and they were good friends. In fact, George Whitfield encouraged John Wesley to go out on the road and they would preach and evangelize and, and reach thousands and thousands of people in the early colonies uh, of our country. And uh, as time went on, the men disagreed. They got, you know, they got all their noses out of joint over some uh, theology. Uh, Whitfield was leaning more heavily toward Calvinism. 
uh, McGinnis says, and his young, younger friend uh, was leaning toward Arminianism. And when Whitfield died, uh, Wesley was asked if he expected to see Dr. Whitfield in heaven. Are you going to see him someday? And you know what he said? He said, no. He'll be so near to the throne of God that men like me will never even get a glimpse of him. Though differing, they did not lose their sense of oneness in Christ. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. It's been my observation that well-meaning but really kind of narrow-minded evangelicals will often camp on and focus on the differences that oftentimes will stir up disunity and, and petty infighting instead of focusing and taking the time to really focus on what we have in common in Christ as brothers and sisters in the church family. So let's never give the enemy a foothill or a foothold here at Foothills. Let's never give the enemy a foothills in, in our foothill church. <laughs> never give the enemy a foothold at Foothills. <laughs> because if we do, we will uh, end up weak. We'll end up divided and splintered and fractured and crippled instead of being the mighty army, the crack force that God has called us to be. And uh, if we don't uh, uh, remain big enough to ignore the little differences or the few disagreements that we might have, um, we will not be united and the enemy will dance for joy. That brings us to the second principle illustrated in the Israelites here crossing over the Jordan. That is, uh, they fixed their attention on the Lord. Their focus 100% was on God. It wasn't even on Joshua. They said, we'll follow you as long as you keep your eyes on the Lord. Look at verse uh, 16. They answered Joshua saying, all that you have commanded us we will do. Wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Totally sold out. All, wherever. We will do, we will go, we will obey. They were united. They kept their focus on Christ. Their eyes were firmly and fully fixed on him. He was now their focus, and they were uh, focusing on the presence and the power of what God was doing uh, in and among them and in front of them. As a result, uh, their entire perspective had changed. Uh, God was, was giving the drumbeat, and they were marching to his cadence, not their own. And there was no reluctance. Now they wanted him. They wanted God. They knew he was a great and mighty God, worthy to be praised. They knew he was a big God. They moved forward with confidence. And listen, unless our eyes are on God and his word, the unity and moving forward as a church family will be absolutely impossible. Let me just wrap up a couple of things real quickly. Practical areas that we can apply to where we're at today. First of all, within our church, by God's grace, we here at, at Foothills, we might be a small church, but you know what? God is still at work in a mighty way, in an exciting way. There's a lot of maturity and ministry going on. Our children, our youth programs right now are, are slowly, steadily growing. More and more people are getting involved in life groups, and they're doing life together, and they're, and they're growing in that mentoring, discipleship relationship of what that means in doing life together. We're focusing in new ways and in missions when it comes to you know, partnering with uh, Pastor Selenga in the Congo or, or starting up these MUG groups, M-U-G, uh, meetup groups. There's about four or five or six of them that are starting up in our church, all for the purpose of reaching out and bringing people into relationship uh, and, and into a walk with Christ. And it's exciting times. God's doing wonderful things with our mums group and so many other groups. The lives of men, women, and children are being transformed. We're in a great position 
as a church right now to go to the next level of growth when it comes to maturity and outreach. We're not talking about numbers. You know, numbers take care of themselves. I, I want to focus our church family on health, on, on, on what it means to be strong in the Lord, to be growing. And numbers, you know, we're never, we've never been about numbers. We're not focused on that. If numbers come in, that's because of God. God gives the increase. We want to be faithful to what God has called us to be. Like Israel entering the promised land, I believe that our best years are ahead of us. I really do, as a church family. Nothing's going to happen, though, unless, like Israel, we pull together. We basically continue to ignore any petty differences between us. That we're big. <laughs> we, have, we have a big God, and we ourselves are big. We're growing. We rally our hearts together in unity, in our unity in Christ. You know, for, for years now, we've enjoyed a unity in our church, and I never want to take that for granted. Never. Why? Because the enemy never sleeps. He'll do whatever he can to divide us. Author Michael Tamello writes this, Over 3,800, almost 4,000 churches close their, their doors every year annually in the United States. He says the reasons for these closures run the gamut. Real or perceived pastoral incompetency, strife, infidelity in leadership marriages, lack of financial integrity, doctrinal discrepancies, power struggles, persecution, congregational distrust or dissatisfaction, choosing sides on some issue, and more. He goes on, it's no secret that church splits inflict damage upon the army of God. Things like divorce, death, or sickness of a beloved leader, job transfers, college relocation, military reassignments, and the like wreak havoc upon the rank-and-file believer. All of these situations leave the average Christian scratching his or her head in bewilderment as their brothers and sisters in Christ leave the fellowship never to return. Second area when we want to apply when it comes to this passage here is in our community. We, we need to be involved to make an impact in the community that we, that we live in. We have to be willing to take risks, to reach out, to get out of our comfort zone, to get out beyond ourselves to reach a dark and dying world in desperate need of a Savior. Val Montefiore reminded me of, a, of something that she read this week I'd heard before, that 92% of all Christians have never led anyone to Christ. 92%. Less than 10% of all Christians have never led anybody to Jesus. 80% of all Christians are not sharing their faith. Why is that? People, are, people coming to Christ doesn't just happen. <laughs> You know, risk reaching out. Take the initiative. Make, uh, take a few steps to your neighbor. Get to know them. Build relationships. We're so busy with so many things. Risk reaching out. Open up. Be warm. Be transparent. I mentioned these, these uh, meetup groups. This is one thing, just one thing, one tool that we're trying to uh, get people to feel free and liberated and open to sharing and bringing in other people. We have uh, several of them. We've got a mountain bike meetup group. There's about five or six of us that meet on Wednesdays, and we go mountain biking. We've got two or three guys that are not church. They're not Christians. They just come along. We're building friendships with them. They'll probably never want to darken the door of a church, but they'll, they'll come along with a bunch of guys doing mountain biking. We've got a group, that, a meetup group, a mug, that, uh, that sews on, uh, once every couple of weeks on Saturday morning. We've got a, a golfing group. Go golf. Grab a neighbor or someone and go golfing and build relationships with them. Begin to radiate the love and light of Christ. Not to beat them over the head of the Bible, just build relationships with them and let God use you in that particular situation. We have a hiking group. Men and women that go out and they go hiking in these hills. We've got a wonderful area here, don't we? I mean, as far as being able to just go out and hike in the, 
and bike in these hills. We've got a coffee group that meets during the week. They just invite their neighbors. Some women get together and it's just a casual place to bring people in, to build relationships, and just naturally let the light and love of Jesus in your heart and life um, radiate out in that, in that friendship. Israel came to the land. They didn't come as tourists. They didn't come as, as uh, visitors or, or pilgrims. But they came as invaders. Listen, we are called to invade. We are called to take possession. Not of people, not of land. We're called to take possession of enemy territory that's been in the enemy's hands way too long. It's about uh, taking back and helping to redeem people who are broken, who are hurting in the world in which we live. They're in our neighborhoods. They're broken. Invading the lost territory of sin and death with the light and love and power of Jesus. There's a message that people need to hear. And as a, as a, as a family, as a church, what are we doing? I don't want to just be us four, close the door and no more. You know? Let's reach out. Make a difference in our, in our town. You know, may, Christ may not calm down or remove all the battles in your life. I know you're, you're going through battles, I'm going through battles, but what he does do is he can take and, and transform a fearful heart and, with a calming peace right in the middle of those same battles that you're going through. But first you have to trust him. You have to trust his word. Are you trusting him? Are you, are you getting into his word? Do you know him? Are you growing in your knowledge of him? How big is he? Isaiah 26, 3, The steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace. Why? Because he trusts in you. The battle belongs to the Lord. Whatever battle you're going through, it belongs to him. Secondly, accept the challenges that come your way without fear. Isaiah 41, 10, Wonderful promise. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you. Surely I will uh, uphold you and, and help you uh, with my righteous right hand. Maybe this morning you feel like you're facing a battle you cannot face. God is with you. He promises to strengthen you. He says, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. My hope and prayer is that you rely upon him more and more. Don't avoid it. Don't complain about it. <laughs> Be a conqueror in Christ. Go into the battle, realizing that the victory is already yours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.